On a warm Saturday afternoon in June 1958, 2,000 Nebraskans gathered in a grass field about an hour's drive from the Capitol. Free donuts were passed around, a band from the Air Force played, and a series of politicians gave optimistic speeches about progress and economic advancement. And then the main event. The crowd cheered and a bulldozer roared to life, its blade cutting into the soil to break ground for a new power plant. But this would be no ordinary power plant. It was one of the first of its kind in the world. This facility would generate its electricity from an energy source that mankind was still learning how to master, nuclear fission. And other, more secretive nuclear facilities were being built simultaneously in other rural parts of the state. And while public figures wrung their hands over the potential benefits and consequences of nuclear technology, the true fate of these earliest nuclear projects were being determined by the rural communities that hosted them. I'm Ben Bohal. And I'm Nick Batter. And this is Neglecta. So we're off at Air Force Base on a gravel road. It looks like this is an area used to discard old trailers. In front of us, though, lit up is the runway, huge runway. But across from it is this really large building called the Offit Fieldhouse. It's used as a gym, but this was actually the building that was originally used to manufacture B-29 Superfortress bombers. It was right here that the famed Boeing B-29 Superfortress bomber, known as the Enola Gay, was manufactured. The plane would come into notoriety for being the first to drop an atomic bomb. The bomb, codenamed Little Boy, was dropped over the city of Hiroshima, Japan, and caused unprecedented destruction. The colonel who dropped the bomb personally selected the B-29 off the production floor near Omaha. He named it after his mom. Boxcar, the plane which dropped a plutonium bomb over the city of Nagasaki several days later, was also assembled here. The assembly line produced dozens of other nearly identical craft the same year, all prepared for their own nuclear bombing missions. The bombing of Japan was a turning point in many respects. Most immediately, it ended World War II. But at the same time, as these bombs detonated for the whole world to see, America's uneasy relationship with its wartime ally Russia solidified into the Cold War. And of course, those shockwaves were felt in America's heartland. Geography had insulated the interior states from any serious direct threat throughout two world wars. That changed. Suddenly, eastern Nebraska was the front line. So Nick's going to read a passage taken from the memoirs of William Clovecorn. He's the longtime state poet of Nebraska, writing about his memories as a boy in Kansas delivering the newspaper the morning after the bombing of Hiroshima. Delivering the newspapers that day, I felt like a messenger beyond any form of recall, a bearer of good, though peculiar, tidings. Good, because our Johnnies would at last come marching home again. Peculiar, because a lid had been lifted on a chest, marked think again, and what had escaped was an animal, the likes of which we commoners could not quite conceive, much less contain. So the escaped animal in this passage that's, you know, hard to contain, hard to conceive, that's nuclear power, right? Right. Exactly. So the tension here in this passage is whether nuclear power is this wild animal that's going to 
run loose, run amok, and destroy everything, or if it's something that we can domesticate and maybe use for good constructive purposes. Now let's switch gears from the poetry to the science side of things. When it comes to nuclear science, it may not be simple to explain why it's so complicated. But when it comes to rocket science, it actually is kind of simple to explain why it's so complicated. I spoke with Jocelyn Bosley. She's the Assistant Director for Education and Outreach for the Materials Research Science and Engineering Center at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. If you have fuel and a controlled explosion that's being used to continue to add thrust to the rocket, um, it just increases the number of variables that could potentially affect the, the course. But advances in rocket technology in the middle of the century meant that the idea of sending crafts into space, maybe even with people inside, was no longer such a far-fetched idea. Yet the same technology that promised to carry mankind into the heavens also threatened new dangers. With the push of a button, a rocket carrying an atomic bomb could, hypothetically, allow one country to wipe an entire city off the map. So when Russians launched the world's first satellite, the event was marked with both amazement and terror. The small object circled the Earth, sounding off for weeks with the haunting sound of its telemetry signal. So not a big surprise, but this satellite was of huge interest to Strategic Air Command. They set up a team to track it, day and night. But keeping perfect tabs on a small metal ball moving 10,000 miles an hour isn't the easiest task. And sometimes the Air Force lost the signal. But luckily, some public school kids just 20 minutes north of SAC headquarters were also listening to the skies. And on days when the Air Force missed their mark, these kids, led by sophomore Doug Flair, were keeping the newspapers in the loop by applying the science they were learning in the classroom. I caught up with Doug over 60 years later to hear firsthand about his experience. They had provided a course for people. We tried to get them to start a radio club, and we didn't get anywhere with that, but they did provide a uh, technical thing on Saturday morning. And I'm like, Dad, let me drill holes in the roof. As luck would have it, Doug's antenna, pushed through the holes he drilled in the ceiling and hooked up to his amateur radio receiver, was perfect for picking up Sputnik's broadcasts at 20 and 40 megahertz. That perfect antenna size, coupled with expected flyover times, gave him an unexpected edge. So, Doug, what was it like knowing you were capturing these signals? They had better stuff than we had by far. And, uh, but it, you know, it was, we, I had logs and stuff. We wrote down the times that, that, you know, and then we could verify. They pretty much every night had something on television on the 10 o'clock news that would, you know, tell you the times and that it passed over, overhead. And there was a, a bunch of people that were trying to actually see it, but I, I don't think it was possible. It was too small. It was, a little bit larger than a basketball, if I remember right. Within a few months, America was putting its own satellites into orbit using the latest advancement in rocket science, the Atlas missile. Through the nose cone of an atlas, President Eisenhower delivered history's first satellite broadcast. This is the President of the United States speaking. Through the marvels of scientific advance. Through the marvels of scientific advance. My voice is coming to you from a 
My voice is coming to you from a satellite circling in outer space. Through this unique means, I convey to you and all mankind America's wish for peace on earth and goodwill to men everywhere. And while the country shared Eisenhower's wishes for peace, the military marched forward to develop smaller nuclear weapons that could fit onto a missile like the Atlas. Some of this progress can be credited to a young scientist from Lincoln. Emerson Jones was an undergraduate at the University of Nebraska's engineering school when he was called to service in the Army Air Corps in the European theater. During combat, he was captured by Nazis and held prisoner under extreme circumstances, in the final, desperate months of the war. Undaunted by this experience, possibly even motivated by it, Jones went to work at Los Alamos National Labs, birthplace of the atom bomb. Within a few short years, he was the head of research and development for the government's Special Weapons Division. Jones worked on highly experimental devices. After an accident one day involving plutonium, His colleagues refused to be in the same room as him, fearing that Jones himself had become radioactive. When his research at Los Alamos ended, Jones brought his experiments home with him to Lincoln, building components for a large atomic gun, an early particle accelerator, and the University of Nebraska's physics department, where undergraduates were encouraged to experiment with it. Jones' return to Nebraska was well-timed as the responsibility for America's nuclear assets had been vested in Strategic Air Command, headquartered at Offutt Air Force Base. The command's mission was of such high national interest that a Hollywood film, entitled Strategic Air Command, starring Jimmy Stewart, was released in 1955. Now, for the first time, the Air Force throws open its guarded gates to reveal the amazing story of America's top-secret striking force. Its earth-shaking power ready for defense at a moment in history when the world trembles in the shadow of the H-bomb. The film premiered at the Orpheum Theater in Omaha amid three days of celebration. It was a strange mix of movie stars and top military brass. General Curtis LeMay and actress June Allison stood together to cut an enormous cake adorned with a model bomber. Then everyone sat down to a steak dinner. The film featured stunning aerial footage and top-list actors. But more than anything, it served as a two-hour advertisement for the mission of Strategic Air Command. When units of all three SAC Air Forces are equipped with B-47s, our overall mobility will be doubled. It all boils down to less danger of war. I've called you to Omaha for the special briefings that will follow because each one of you is going to be a key man in the B-47 program. Let's leave it this way. The B-47 is on third base. It'll be up to you to bring it home. Yet, while the public eye was fixed on the bomber fleet, geopolitical strategy began to shift towards intercontinental missiles. And with all nuclear command centralized at Offutt, the question became how to position America's Atlas missiles across the Great Plains so that they could be deployed if needed, but not vulnerable to a preemptive strike. One early idea was to keep the missiles constantly in motion on trucks, 
the country's interstate system was built, first and foremost, as a national defense project. The specifications for the heights of bridges and overpasses along every interstate are set to ensure that a truck hauling an Atlas missile has exactly enough space to travel safely beneath. Scientists like Emerson Jones understood and stressed the full implications of a traffic accident involving a nuclear warhead. Ultimately, the government would decide against a roving highway missile fleet. Instead, they decided to bury the missiles in dozens of secret underground bunkers. Those bunkers were located beneath the cornfields and pastureland of Tornado Alley, from Texas to Iowa to Wyoming. But eastern Nebraska would hold the lion's share of these weapons, 18 in total, as plans were executed for enormous underground launch bases. And these bases had to be built in a hurry, simultaneously. But alarmingly, the government and major defense contractors did not have enough manpower to get the work done. Moreover, communities near the remote construction sites did not have the infrastructure to support literal armies of outer state builders. The success of this centerpiece of America's national defense hinged entirely upon these rural communities coming together to build them. Thousands of farmers, ranchers, mill workers, housewives stepped up to drive trucks, pour concrete, place rebar, run electrical wire, and manage schematics across dozens of rural project sites. Barns and church basements were turned into dormitories for the expert engineers flown in to oversee the most technical aspects of the project. The importance of nearby small towns and the workforce they provided was not overlooked by the Air Force. When a visiting general overheard a colonel blaming local workers for project delays, the general immediately and publicly stripped the colonel of command. Thanks to nearly 100 communities across the Great Plains, laboring around the clock, missile-based construction proceeded on schedule. As the silos were completed, one by one, Atlas missiles with nuclear warheads were delivered by trucks down distant dirt roads. Servicemen manned these bunkers around the clock, locked in command modules underground for days on end, ready to participate in World War III if needed. When they weren't performing drills or maintaining enormous computers, the airmen found creative ways to pass the time. Some missile crews used their command bunkers as performance spaces, for ad hoc musical acts. And pass all the tests. Oh, when do we get alert pay? We drive to our site, though it takes half the night, through the wind and the rain and the snow. Our leaders are brave, but at home they must stay. How we'd like to tell them what to do. Home, home in the home, where all our sack missile men stay. We watch our timbers till the warbled tones heard, but it's only an Olympic play. Even walking into this huge bunker, it's like walking into another time. Yeah, the paint is still on the walls the way it would have been at the time. Um, these really long corridors are disorienting as you're underground. Yeah, and you see, like it just yeah, like you said, the discoloration. You've seen these big, huge computers, you know, the avocado green color. 
You know, it's obviously everything's very dated. Even the blast doors are still there um, on both sides, on one side to guard against the missile that would be going off, but presumably on the other side to protect anybody in the command module against the nuclear bombs being launched against them. It's such an eerie feeling to be down there, you know, it's almost kind of haunting and you have the standing water and everything. It's just, it's just, it's unworldly. Yeah, and the area that these soldiers would have had to live in, it's pretty confining. You would have been stuck there for days, maybe weeks on end, uh, even during ordinary situations. It'd be pretty claustrophobic. I think the most pivotal part of our entire journey down there was, was seeing the silo itself, which is about 170 feet. You know, it's filled with water, and then you get these little these pinpricks of light that are shining through, or, you know, you can see kind of the outside or get an idea of it. Hello? Hello? Not everyone was so happy to see the silo projects moving forward. Emerson Jones had overseen some of the first post-war nuclear bomb tests in a remote region of the Pacific known as Bikini Atoll. The inhabited island ring, formed by the remains of a dead volcano, was once again lit up with a primordial fire. When the bomb testing became more widely known, a group of resolute pacifists set out to interrupt the government's experiments. They constructed a small boat of tropical wood, hoisting three white sails up its double mast, and set off into the sea. They were stopped short of their target by the Coast Guard and imprisoned in Hawaii. But from the newspapers in their jail cells, they learned of America's newest nuclear project, the Atlas Missile. They recruited dozens of others for a new campaign, and upon release, this group set out on their next mission to stop the silo construction in Nebraska. These pacifists were led by a 72-year-old minister named A.J. Musty. Under Musty's leadership and his philosophy of peaceful intervention, the group set up a permanent camp outside a construction site in Saunders County. The site was among the largest of the planned silo complexes. It was built to house three missiles in semi-hardened coffin launchers. The pacifists set up a printing press and handed out literature to anyone who would listen. To them, nuclear weapons were inherently evil. Worse yet, missile technology allowed people to kill each other from a distance without even having to witness the devastating results. By not having to understand the moral consequences of violence, Musty feared humanity would spiral into increasingly violent warfare. We spoke with Bradford Little, one of the youngest protesters at Musty's camp. It seemed to me very pretty clearly that uh, opposing these missile systems was uh, the, the most important thing the peace movement could be doing. While Musty succeeded in attracting national media attention, he failed to sway local opinion. Although the bases were a source of anxiety to some, with farmers converting root cellars into fallout shelters, the silos also served as a source of patriotic pride, seen as a necessary deterrent. Shortly after the protesters arrive, nearly 40 businesses in Mead and Wahoo, lumber yards, feed stores, even the local Dairy Queen, collectively took out a full-page newspaper ad addressing Mussey and his camp. The short message read, in part, 
We believe in peace power, the strength to keep the peace. To the demonstrators, we say, wrong place, wrong time, wrong way. Unable to change local opinion, Musty and his followers move to the next phase of their demonstration, direct intervention. In pairs of two, the protesters jumped the fence of the missile base and attempted to disrupt construction vehicles. They were arrested pretty much right away. A photographer snaps this really dramatic picture of Musty, a small framed clergyman in a Panama hat, clamoring over a gate to be arrested by armed guards. The photo ran in papers around the world. Now in custody, Musty and his group are hauled before a federal judge. They give long, earnest speeches about their convictions. They plea for peace and an end to the U.S. nuclear programs. One of them recites a verse of poetry, but the judge's response is more terse, handing down prison time. For Bradford Little, his incarceration in Omaha was the most memorable part of his involvement with Musty. We were temporarily housed in the Omaha prison, which was one of the worst prison, local prisons I've ever been in. It was on top of that courthouse. It may still be there. And there's no air conditioning. It was absolutely um, just oven-like up there, and uh, there was water on the floor of the, the prison cell area, and you had to put mattresses down in this water and try to sleep in that. Even in the height of the Cold War, President Eisenhower saw that nuclear technology could be used for more than just making big explosions. Applications like energy, medicine, and food processing were promising, a concept Eisenhower called Atoms for Peace. These new technologies allured Emerson Jones, who leveraged his background in weapons development and became a nuclear consultant for Nebraska Public Power District. It wasn't long before Nebraska laid plans for one of the country's first large-scale nuclear power plants at a rural site outside the town of Hallam. Here's Jocelyn again. The way nuclear reactors are constructed, you have this nuclear reaction happening in a chamber surrounded by water. And then as this nuclear fission occurs, it releases energy, which heats the water. And there's a couple different ways that this can work, but essentially the water, when it's heated, becomes steam, and the steam turns the wheel, which powers, which is what creates the electricity, just like in other forms of electricity generation. After years of experiments in controlled testing environments, construction began on an experimental sodium graphite reactor. It was the first of its kind put into commercial use. Once in operation, the Hallam facility became one of the state's major power plants. It generated much of the power for Lincoln and dozens of surrounding communities. When he wasn't busy managing the delicate operations at the plant, Emerson Jones was traveling the state to extol the miracle of nuclear power. Even Edward R. Murrow weighed in on the hopes surrounding this early experimental reactor. Enrico Fermi once looked at a reactor and said, wouldn't it be wonderful if it could cure the common cold. Here at Moore Park, a chain reaction that started with him, washed the dishes and lit a book for a small boy to read. Everything was going so well, until one day in 1964, Emerson Jones received an emergency phone call. Some of the protective steel in the reactor had cracked. The reactor's sodium coolant was leaking and spreading to the reactor's graphite moderators. Unlike a more primitive power plant, 
You can't just flip a switch and send someone down into the core to change a broken part. The Holland plant was taken offline as Emerson Jones scrambled for a solution. As with all of these kinds of processes where there's a really delicate balance, I mean, you, you calculate and quantify things as much as you can. This is how much moderator we need. Um, but the nature of a nuclear reaction sort of is not to be, um, it's not that easy to, to control um, because it is sort of a random process. The problem facing Emerson Jones was the core's moderators were damaged and there was no way to extract them. Without functioning moderators, which absorb excess particles, running the reactor could trigger a runaway chain reaction. A meltdown, if you will. The plant was not willing to take this risk. Jones mourned as the uranium cores were extracted and the entire facility was flooded with cement. Today, the reactor still lies entombed at the Hallam Power Plant. Covered in grass, the site is referred to as the grave. Again, it's, it's covered in, in dirt and grass, and they water it and mow it, keep it in really good shape. And there's monitoring well locations around the perimeter of it that, again, they test I guess, every two years now um, just to keep an eye on it. Um, when we go down, there's, there is a nameplate on the south side of it, on the wall that we can walk up to. It just kind of says what it, what it was and everything. So we can walk up to that. You're going to walk out to the center of the reactor, but I think it'll be about 20 paces, right? It'll be about <laughs> yeah. steps. Yep. Yep. Stand in the walk. middle of a reactor. Right below us is where one of the first nuclear reactors generating power in the country, in the world. Yeah. It's so nondescript. Just yeah, it's just like a normal hill. Snowy grass. But there's an entire, entire power station below us. The setback at Holland was not a permanent one for the state. Jones would go on to help develop more projects, including a large plant in Nemaha County that still operates today. Despite criticism from activists like A.J. Musty, who, in his later years, came out in opposition to nuclear power, the state moved forward with new projects. Nuclear power remains controversial, but Nebraska has faced the controversy by fixing and adapting to setbacks while still moving forward to embrace scientific advance and implement cutting-edge technology to deliver power to consumers. Emerson Jones, pioneer of nuclear technology for both war and peace, would continue his service as a nuclear advisor in Nebraska and even as a consultant for NASA. Like many early scientists in his field, he died prematurely of an aggressive cancer. A.J. Musty served his six-month sentence in federal prison for his Atlas protest and continued to lead pacifist protests around the world until, at age 82, his heart finally gave out. While his absolute pacifism is still seen as a radical, 
Today, almost everyone shares his fear of a war involving nuclear arms. Strategic Air Command's successor, STRATCOM, is still vested with America's nuclear assets from its headquarters at Offutt. Today, the Atlas silos are abandoned, thankfully having never been used. Reliquary of the Cold War. As for the entombed nuclear reactor at Hallam, the once burning heart of an experimental power plant, now sealed and buried in a concrete grave, it was eventually converted into a power plant for one of mankind's most primitive energy sources, combustible coal. But the story of the Hallam plant does not end here. Construction is currently underway to supply the facility with a new fuel source, pure hydrogen. The enormous turbine, once moved by nuclear-heated steam, will spin again, inducing hidden coils within the plant's original Westinghouse generator, light blue with painted yellow lightning bolts. The plant at Hallam will once again be the first of its kind in the nation, supplying public power to thousands of prairie homes, thanks to scientific innovation. From a decommissioned Atlas missile base beneath the cornfields of southeastern Nebraska, this is Neglecta. This episode was made with the help of Doug Flair, Bradford Little, Mark Becker, Chris Cervaney, and the Nebraska Public Power District, and Jocelyn Bosley. In addition to her day job, Jocelyn runs a great science education website. You can find more of her work at funsizephysics.com. Original music composed by Mark Nickel, Neglecta was recorded at Studio 24 in Omaha. And you can join Nick and me as we continue to explore the history and culture of the Great Plains. Visit us online at neglecta.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. As always, thanks for listening.